The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. August 19th, 2022, and there are 57 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Less than two months. It's getting so close. It is bearing down on us like a giant blimp about to crash into the city. But if you want to continue help supporting us on our coverage of said blimp as it bears down upon us, make sure to visit patreon.com slash Report. Yes, at patreon.com slash Report. There you sign up for as little as two bucks a month. And we'll give you access to our patron Slack where you can gossip about all things politics and BC. That is patreon.com slash Report. Lots still happening. That's why we're here weekly from the ongoing crisis in the downtown east side to developments to lots of candidate news. Let's start with some promises that are coming out. How are we going to fix the crisis of homelessness and addictions and overdoses, Matthew? How about cops and nurses? A hundred cops and a hundred nurses from A Better City Vancouver and Ken Sim. The party and mayor candidate have decided that they want to expand the CAR 8788 program by hiring a hundred cops and a hundred nurses and cutting a ton of city programs in order to make up the cost for it. It's unrealistic and, in my mind, totally disqualifying. (laughs) Officially, Ken Sim says they will not be making any tax increases. There will not be any cuts to core services. Cutting resources to VPD is not an option. There's not going to be uh, full-time employment reductions. There's not going to be cuts to other mental health or community supports. And hiring these 200 people will only cost twenty only $20 million a year. Only $20 million a year. Which also, for, for background, the average VPD officer makes around $100,000 a year. A nurse probably makes slightly less because that's the kind of society we live in. So 200 times 100000 gives you $20 million. It takes a little bit more than just that, though, to support 200 employees. So a lot of people have already argued that this will cost more than $20 million. Yeah. Also, the some of the cuts that are being proposed for this program are cybersecurity. In the wake of many municipal hacks across the country and the globe, um, municipalities are like the soft underbelly of gar- government in terms of cybersecurity and also a place where cybersecurity can do quite a bit of damage. Imagine our electrical grid or a water pump facility those kinds of things might be affected by a cybersecurity hack it is absolutely fucking irresponsible for ken sim to propose cutting cybersecurity it is like abysmally idiotic and also in like this wasn't part of the official announcement this kind of came out in an interview with jazz joe hall that spencer powell tweeted out he would also find savings by not expanding diking the Fraser River, something that seems incredibly necessary during a climate crisis that is ongoing and getting worse. 
It's this idea that the city's job is to keep the streets clean, get water and sewer to your house, and mow the lawn, although that's more of an NPA position. We don't actually know what ABC's position on mowing grass is yet, I don't think. So the rivals to Kensim have basically decried this program as unrealistic and stupid. I think it's worth like digging into what CAR 87 is. This is a longstanding program of the VPD that I think was established in the 70s. It's the idea that there's a unit on Vancouver Police Force where alongside a cop is stationed a mental health or a psychiatric nurse who can respond to mental health crises a little bit more effectively than just an un, a police officer who's not trained in mental health crises as much. It's been pretty widely celebrated in many quarters. There, Ken Sim even dug up a letter from all Metro Vancouver mayors, including Kennedy Stewart, arguing that it should be expanded. I think a few years ago, they did expand to a second car. So there were now 87 and 88. Ken Sim's proposal is to have 100 of them, which is a lot. And it also begs the question of like, where are you going to hire these people from? Because part of the problem we're seeing across the country is no one wants to work in the healthcare system anymore, because it is demoralizing. Yeah. This is great. This was actually a partnership between Vancouver Coastal Health and the city of Vancouver. Having this become like a city-run program is very unrealistic and would effectively mean that there's this subunit of Vancouver Health underneath Vancouver Coastal Health, which Vancouver Coastal Health will hate and seek to undermine at every turn. Let's also remember that the police, as we've learned, operate very independently of the city. Their funding is set by themselves and the Vancouver Police Board, and the yep. city is forced to just sign off on this. Now, the police aren't going to turn down free money from the city, but they're under no obligation to do this or to do it in the way that Ken Sim wants. He'll be chair of the police board, but we've learned very well that he ha- that's a non-voting member. So, this raises a lot of questions about feasibility. Yeah. But he says he'll do it on day one. That's ambitious and absurd. Stewart called the promise deliberately misleading and ridiculously lowballed. Colleen Hardwick called the program all sizzle and no steak, which, I mean, for all that we think about Colleen Hardwick, well done. (laughs) It's like a very silly promise. And I think it's embarrassing for Ken Sim and the ABC team to put this forward. George Affleck managed to compound slash mitigate slash try and re-explain the the promise by saying on Twitter, let me rewrite Ken Sim's promise. The city will hire 200 police and health support workers and send the invoice to Victoria. If the province doesn't pay, brackets, they should, and brackets, we'll send them to collections in the next provincial election by telling voters to vote them out. Hashtag Van Polly. So, the promise gets weirder and weirder because apparently this isn't even going to come from the city's coffers. It's going to come from the province, which, I mean, look at how successful every government is getting money from a senior government level, especially by demanding it. I'll give them credit for like ingenuity here, boldness. It, it doesn't make up for changing tracks on the park board. I feel like scrapping park board, 
it wouldn't have saved 20 million because you would still need some oversight of parks. So there would still be some employment there, but I don't know, maybe they would have saved some money by scrapping the park board and could have tied these together that way, but not even willing to do that. But Ken Sim's not the only one with ideas and promises. No, he is not. Mark Marison and the Progress Vancouver team have released a downtown east side plan in a op-ed in business in vancouver saying tents will be with us until we build housing and support services as we need which strikes me not so much as a plan so much as a stark acknowledgement of reality i'll credit mark for starting his essay his editorial from a place of compassion he talks about talking with people in Strathcona Park encampments before he decided to run for mayor. He talks about the stories he heard from people. And I think that level of direct engagement and listening is necessary from anyone who's wanting to run for mayor. I remember talking to Ken Sim four years ago, and he talked to us about how he would go down to the downtown east side weekly to volunteer and help out and talk to people. And that was one thing that I respected about him. I don't think people down there are calling for more cops and nurses. They're calling for a lot of other things. Mark's plan here is interesting in some ways. It's a lot of yell at other levels of government, which to be fair, is necessary because there's only so many tools in the city's toolbox. Yes. So one thing that he wants to particularly do is negotiate a new Vancouver agreement for a unified strategy and funding model. This, I think, makes sense. While homelessness is a problem in every municipality, and I do take issue with Mark's plan and implication that homelessness is a problem being shouldered primarily by Vancouver for the region. It's not. It is maybe a little more intense here, but homelessness exists everywhere. I think Justin McElroy had a couple good tweets and graphs looking at the regional weight of this. And Vancouver definitely disproportionately bears the burden in Metro. Part of that is a lot more social housing is built there in that city. So there just aren't places for people to be in Coquitlam or Surrey as much versus Vancouver has the SROs, it has the low income housing in some ways. So it's done more on that. So people are there. And then you get situations like the fires we saw recently that displace more people. And so it's not a factor that everywhere in the region or in the country is dumping their homeless people on Vancouver. That's been debunked. But there are, there's more people in Vancouver and there's more poverty in certain areas because of Vancouver has done its work. But now in terms of build, so everywhere needs to build more is the point I'm trying to get to. In particular for building, the Marison plan suggests that we need to secure government funding to buy all SROs, eventually demolish these in favor of building public housing with mental health and community supports, and cut red tape around permits and zoning to allow these buildings to get built more quickly. These are great promises. The second one is pretty pure, what you would expect from Progress Vancouver. It's the party that grew out of Yes Vancouver. It's there to build more housing. But the taking over the SROs, I think, is something we've seen a little bit of. We saw 
the city expropriate too from the Sahotas when they got so bad. I think there's more opportunity to do that. And I think working with other levels of government to take these over because they're just blights on they you know, absolutely their moral are. blights. Like they're the housing of last resort and they're not even really a choice, but they're the only thing some people can afford. And so the very least we can do is start replacing those and finding better options and making sure that the people running them do have their the residents' best interests in mind rather than just the profit margin. He also suggests that we need to audit the downtown east side services. This is, I guess it's a bit of a soft to the right wing of what is a broadly a pretty left wing policy. I think there is some suggestion that there is waste going on in downtown east side services, but I think this is like a low ball way of saying maybe there's waste not we're going to go and cut a bunch of things. Yeah, it's not quite a dog whistle. It's not like overtly racist in any way. Uh, I'm sure someone could argue that, but I'm not going to try. It, it's a sop though. It's that kind of yeah. thing the NPA would be like, what we need to do first is make sure everything is as efficient as possible. And it's like, you never talk about that with the police. Meanwhile, no. most of the charities and social services running in the downtown east side are running mostly off private donations, off grant funding, and are like, I've worked in a lot of nonprofits, and none of them are particularly flush with cash. There's definitely efficiencies that could be done, but they also don't have the money to do efficiencies because they're focused on spending the little money they Providing have on doing services. core services. Yeah. So it's a bit insulting. Uh, it's within, I don't know, I guess it's the SOP and... Yeah, it's Play. the SOP. It's the SOP to it, it needed to, I think, be there in in terms of Mark and Progress's positioning inside the greater Vancouver sphere of political opinions. He also suggests that Vancouver needs to one call for an increase to the three hundred seventy five dollars shelter rate from the province and call for BC to invest more in trauma and addiction treatment. And for the federal government to get CMHC to fund more non-market housing. These are all good things. No one's really against them. It's just the kind of promise you see a lot of mayoral candidates make and even people as mayor talk about because, like I mentioned off the top of this, there's only so much the city can do. And so demanding things from higher levels of government is necessary. Like one of the things Kennedy Stewart sold himself on was... He's the guy who's been in federal government. He knows how to build these bridges, make partnerships, and get things accomplished for the city. Debatable how much of that has been successful, but does Mark have a stronger case to make for that than Kennedy has? He knows some people. Maybe. <laughs> He's a different voice. He does know some people. Finally, he wants to build mixed-income city-owned housing, use revenue from market rates units to subsidize affordable housing, basically build more housing, what we expect from Progress Vancouver. Yeah. This is nice seeing them talk about building city-owned housing. I think it could be debated whether that housing that a city builds should be financially self-supporting or not. I think there are some who would say it should be funded by the tax base to support those most in need. This model is more two-thirds of it will support one-third of it. Yeah, there are problems with that model, and Vision tried 
doing that model for quite a while. It doesn't really work just because it requires there to be basically no profit at all. Now, given that it's city-owned and being run as a service effectively, that might be a little more effective rather than requiring developers to do it. But it's a very thin margin that they're playing with there. Yeah, and whereas if you just own that it's a service first and foremost and eat that cost. I mean, in either case, I'm glad to see governments talk about building housing because governments have more access to capital and can effectively cheat, right? They can write themselves out of taxes. They can write themselves around permits in ways that developers can't. And so they can get things done easier and should be doing things. That's not to say rezoning the city isn't important as well. We should also do that. And that's in here. But the city can definitely leverage the powers it does have. So some good stuff in here. Like most honest plans about the issues plaguing our cities, A lot of it comes down to just yelling at other levels of government to do what they have downloaded onto the cities. And that is what I think should be the major takeaway from this, is that while this plan is ambitious and some of the promises are a little pie in the sky, it is an honest plan and it is by and large a compassionate and realistic look at what Vancouver needs in terms of social housing and the overall downtown east side problems issue. Speaking of housing, let's talk about the next major development that in theory will deliver 10,000 more people in 6,000 homes over the next the next decade, even in the next 7 years at the rate they're talking about building. Mm. This is the s- Vancouver's densest community. Sanaqua. Built by the Squamish Nation at the edge of the Burrard Bridge. Yes, technically not Vancouver. The interesting thing that's come out is the service agreement between the city of Vancouver and the Squamish Nation has been made public, or at least been acquired by a number of journalists. This is a 250-page document. Really technical, boring stuff for the most part. Who's paying for sewers? Where will it be hooked up? That kind of stuff. Uh Francis Beulah has a piece in the Globe and Mail really digging through it and pulling out some of the main highlights as well as some of the criticisms. So among the stuff we learn in there, like I mentioned, there's going to be 6,000 homes for 10,000 people. Despite that, there will only be 886 car parking spots. I know many people are saying that's 886 too many. We could have that debate. Some people need cars. Some people need cars. It's one in one in seven, roughly, households needing a car is far fewer than the average constructed for the city of Vancouver, and that is impressive. Some people still will need a uh, car. They are making space for bikes, though. They have made space for 4,477 bike parking spots. Gord Price notes in the Globe and Mail article that is fewer than one bike parking spot per home. I guess some people will still bring their bikes into their condos because... Oh, fuck if I'm ever going to leave my bike in a bike parking spot. Absolutely not. No circumstance will ever induce me to leave my bike in a common bike parking zone. Ever. My bikes stay in my apartment. (laughs) These will all be rentals, I believe it also mentions. So it's a very interesting development. 
what really gets interesting, though, is this document gets into who's paying for what. And the Squamish Nation is on the hook for quite a few fees because the city has the services. And so the nation has to figure out how to pay for yes. them and also say, all right, we're going to bring this many people in. How are we going to make sure that they can get out of this tight and somewhat residential area? So they are pledging $15 million to study and build a transit hub at the end of the Burrard Bridge on that end, $5.7 million to upgrade cycling and walking connections, $4.7 million to upgrade the intersection at First and Fur. And that's going to be, I think, the primary exit for this that you'll come out on the little corner there. I had to look at a map and remind myself where this is. That will then you can follow. It's yeah, it kind of bends around when you're going yeah. towards Scramble Island. So you can come out onto First Ave and then get onto the Broad Street Bridge from there. The other connection will be onto Chestnut via Vanier Park. There'll be a new road growing through there, and they're going to pay $6.27 million to build that road and make that connection. That one's quite yes. controversial, which we'll get into. Although that looks like a service. That one looks like a service road and not a main exit. Residence road. Yeah. Yeah. The properties as they're developed will also be taxed and subject to city of vancouver property taxes they will be assessed the normal full tax rate for most city services they will not have to pay for the city planning department or to support city council because they've done their own planning and are managed and run by the squamish nation council that reduces their like amount owable by four percent so it's not too impactful as well the city is giving them a discount on the tax rate for parks that's about 50 percent of what they would charge other parks and 75 percent the rate for arts culture and community services just to promote having more of those in that area which is reasonable to see it's going to be important that area is going to need significant upgrades just in terms of the amount of people that are going to be living there there is going to be need for more development in that area for more commercial services and that is going to have to be an organic process uh, because that kind of semi-industrial area right now is going to require like it's already undergoing somewhat of a transformation right now to like commercial services, more print shops rather than auto body shops. If you get my drift, but there is going to need to be like bakeries and cafes and other stuff that you see in the Eastern end of the Mount Pleasant industrial zone that, that transformation is going to yeah, happen. Yeah, and you see a little bit of that well. along West 4th, or you have that along West 4th, but that's still a little bit of a walk up the hill, and not all of these 10,000 people are going to walk up there every day. And it's spilling down Burrard Street a bit, but yeah, this will definitely accelerate the need for a shift in that area. The other things the Squamish Nation is on the hook for is taking reasonable steps, quote, to get a streetcar through the area and to build a water taxi stop. I have no idea what that means. It means TransLink what, and the city aren't committed to having a streetcar there. So they just have to like talk and be like open to it, which fine. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they be against it. Yeah. And a water taxi stop. I'm sure <laughs> Aquabus and False Creek Ferries will happily put another stop in there for 10,000 people to get around. I love the idea of the Aquabus becoming like, an integral part of the 
the Vancouver transportation system. If only it could be in- integrated with Compass Card, but would be so uh, nice. such is life that we can't have nice the, things. Like I mentioned, the main controversy for local residents, besides those who just hate the idea of big towers, is this idea of a new street. Yeah. You mean Kids Point? <laughs> is this idea of a new street through Vanier Park. Looking at a map, this is cutting right against a fence at the south end of the park. It's not going through the middle of the beach or anything like that. It's already a dirt walking path, so it's not displacing a lot of green space. But the, I think the main challenge is going to be, is this more of a service road that just the garbage trucks go down or how much actual vehicle traffic will drive up that, turn onto Chestnut, and then get onto the Burrard Bridge from right there, from Cornwall. Yeah. Cornwall. It's been a yeah. while since I lived in that neighborhood. If it's, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, question. If it's just for garbage trucks and police access and service vehicle access, deliveries and such, fine. I think that would be okay. Like, you get your Amazon trucks going down there whatever if it's an actual road that residents are going to be using that is a lot of volume like it's maybe 886 cars <laughs> or something or other coming down and bringing much higher traffic load to an intersection which i don't think would be able to handle it nevertheless they're expecting to start excavation this fall with the occupancy of phase one starting in 2026, late 2026, and the final phase people will be moving into by 2029. So that is fast. Like that's super fast. They haven't even been talking about this for that long publicly at least. So great to see massive change to the area. Very exciting stuff though. Absolutely. In terms of other exciting things, there's an absolute shit show at the NPA for who their next mayoral candidate is going to be after the resignation of John Cooper, who resigned for hashtag reasons. They are looking for there's a no mayoral candidate. There's no news here yet. We're still playing in the realm of rumors. The l- last thing I saw was just from yesterday from George Affleck, who was saying, he heard that NPA is going to be announcing their new mayoral candidate soon. Quote, Kennedy Stewart will be preparing his happy dance post-announcement. Ken Sim and Colleen Hardwick, not so much. Oh, Van Polly, you crazy town. The main rumors I've seen yeah. are that it could be one of two people, neither of whom inspire me a lot. The first one is Ken Charco, who is the proprietor of the Dunbar Theater, a longtime member of the NPA. He's actually a council candidate for them right now. He's been pretty prominent in... Oh, why does his name make me cringe so much, Matthew? I'm forgetting the exact reasons. I know. There's something about... There's something about him and being... I think he's just one of those like local voices in the small business community who's willing to just yell about issues in a way that I dislike and disagree with. I'm not saying people shouldn't speak out, but he's the pro-cop type of approach, really calling for law and order break crackdowns and stuff like that. The other potential candidate is even more hilarious to me, though. That is Fred Harding, who longtime listeners might be familiar with because 
we may have actually talked about him once in the last election for the first and last time because he was Vancouver First's mayoral candidate and the seventh place (laughs) finisher. There were so many people who ran in that election. So Fred Harding is a former cop for the West Van Coover Police Department. He has since been like an international consultant on business issues. He's got a deep British accent, which really throws people off because you're not expecting it. He plays sixth last time behind Hector Bremner and just ahead of David Chen of Pro Vancouver. He got 5,640 votes. Kennedy Stewart, for reference, got just shy of 50,000. So the fact that the NPA would be picking someone they defeated by 43,000 votes last time is hilarious to me. Maybe it won't happen, but... Yeah, that's a very funny joke. It's like compounding the very funny joke that is the NPA at the moment. It is abysmal that a party that is theoretically one of the most successful political organizations in the Western world is being reduced to squabbling over... And if they do pick Harding, it would be particularly gross because... He didn't get a lot of headlines in 2018 being the fifth place finisher, but he did get sixth. He did get some for raising questions about whether Soji is going too far in our schools. And as mayor, he would try to do something about that, to which a lot of LGBTQ activists said, that's really gross. And I think even one of his candidates quit the party or quit his campaign over those statements. So... I don't know if he still stands behind that approach, but it's something to watch if the NPA decides to go that route. In other news, Vision, in other news, as candidates jump in and out of the race, Vision has lost Kishoni Roy as a council candidate as they are seeking a opportunity. I know a lot of people are very excited about Kishon running. They've written books on affordable housing, have been a longtime activist. Their book is called Make Housing Central from 2017. Was very exciting. But I think when you're applying for and seriously taking up jobs in the other side of the country, it shows that you're not as optimistic about your opportunity or your chances of winning election. So good luck, Kishon. We are super excited to see where you land. And too bad. We won't get to talk to you as part of this race. After they have left, there are going to be three candidates for city council. Oni Bari, Leslie Bolt, and Vancouver Park Board Commissioner Stuart McKinnon, who used to be a Green Party member. Finally, in as we discussed last week, campaign finance news, Progress has announced two more council candidates. Mayhe and Mary Noel Rosa are the two newest candidates for Progress Vancouver as they try to bring forward a full slate in their run. Neither of these names were particularly familiar to me. He had been in film production and has worked with filmmakers such as Oliver Stone and Jim Rigel and had been on the IOC campaign. Rosa has worked with Emergency Transitional Housing and is a member of QP15. 
Yes, they work in Speaking of candidates. <laughs> Speaking of candidates. In some fashion. Moving uh, around out in Surrey, Councillor Jack Hundile is also taking up new opportunities as he moves to the Okanagan. Hundile was elected with Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition in 2018. He quit the party in 2019. He was the third councillor to quit that party after he just got frustrated with McCallum's style and approach. Hundile, I think, had been one of the louder critics of the group that had led. That group includes Brenda Locke, who is one of many people who are running for mayor. And we'll get into more of that in a second. Many candidates for mayor. Yeah, interesting to see him not try to seek re-election. I think he had been considering going with Locke's party, but I'm not sure. So, finally, the last member of Surrey City who is not running for mayor is now running for mayor. You can now see the Surrey City electoral list simply by opening a Surrey phone book and just reading down the list of names and in Surrey is running for mayor. This is, of course, Amrit Beering. He is running for mayor of Surrey. Now, he is a... (sighs) Yet another our voice on Amrit Beering had right? I just honestly it's only the seventh declared candidate sorry. for Amrit Surrey Beering mayor. in 2021 ran for the People's Party of Canada in Fleetwood Port Kells unsuccessfully, as all People's Party candidates were. So if you hate vaccines and love big trucks, Beering's your guy. Yeah. Honestly, this is just, this is probably the one candidate that might scoop up some of McCallum's votes, but like, what a disastrous shit show this is going to be in Surrey. It might allow Doug McCallum to sleepwalk his way into just, another, ter- yeah, another term as to mayor. I wonder, like, when Jason Kenney won the leadership, there was this allegations that seems pretty real that he paid another candidate to join the race, the infamous kamikaze candidate, just to take down his chief rival in the race, Brian Jean. And this feels like everyone has hired a kamikaze candidate to go after everyone else. So it's just everyone's running to knock everyone else out, and there is no clear... (laughs) The battle royale! It's just like everyone has gone in with a big vest of explosives strapped to themselves that is it's the scene in anchorman where all of the news teams uh, come together and just have a street brawl and things are getting out of hand in surrey yes speaking of the dissolution of all order white rock white rock democracy direct candidates who swept out the last mayor and council yeah i was looking at the party's financials and they have about fifteen hundred dollars in the bank or at least that's what they reported at the end of 2021 they might have a bit more we've talked about the finance rules on what was disclosed earlier um but it seems like democracy has died in white rock democracy has died in white rock or at least the direct kind so mayor daryl rock Mayor Daryl Walker is going to run as an independent. His team that was also elected together are all also running as independents, though. Anthony Manning and Christopher Trevelyan are saying they're like allied independents. Well, Erica Johnson and Scott Christiansen are saying they agree on everything, but they're like strictly independent. And finally... <laughs> and finally, a, David Chesney, who was one of the voices of opposition, is running again, also as an independent. 
Other independents running for council include Ernie Klassen, Michelle Partridge. <laughs> Klassen, Michelle Partridge, and Elaine Chung. So it's truly I, Independence Day in BC, White Rock. The candidates are independents. Like here in Coquitlam, everyone's independent. Port Moody, the Tri-Cities, even yes. as you get further out. There's the occasional party. I think there's a political party in Kamloops, but... It's mostly independents, and it's unusual, like... Parties are the exception, not the rule. However, it is hilarious to see a party so thoroughly destroy itself as Democracy Direct in White Speaking Rock. Speaking of things that are destroyed, those little donuts have been cancelled. The PNE rejected a mini donut operator, and it made Twitter really mad for a day. So it did. Uh, basically, of the several mini donut manufacturers that are operating at the PNE, one of the one of the mini donut manufacturers allegedly the original mini donut manufacturer according to them will not be returning this summer that uh <laughs> they market themselves as the original mini donuts these are those little donuts which is actually a calgary-based company that i actually have fond memories myself of the thing Stampede. is the nostalgia and people like these ones more than others. Brittany Roffel's article in CBC notes that another company is even older or has been at the PE even longer uh, in her article, or at least Laura Balance of the PE Fair says the original mini donut family has been there since 1968. Those little donuts started in 1976. So. I call a little bit of bullshit, I think. The PNE is not saying why uh, they rejected it. I think they just figured I, I don't three mini donut operators at the PNE is sufficient. That's I feel like that's fair. Someone's always gonna be the loser. It feels like a lot of Twitter and Justin McElroy in particular feel like they are the losers in this decision, though. Finally, we end every episode of the Canby Report with a Vancouverada, a little tidbit, a little morsel, a little bite of Vancouver well, history. Well, I the Are little donut story mostly so that we could segue straight into talking about the PNE itself, because I don't think we've actually covered it as an exhibition. We've covered a little bit parts of it. And those little donuts couldn't be our Vancouverada because the they're sad from history of so some buildings. Instead, we're going to talk about the exhibition itself. I joked before we came yeah. on the air that it's the sad Calgary Stampede. Although I think this started before the Stampede by a year or two. Originally named the Industrial Exhibition. Yes, it did. The first exhibition, the first fair was in 1910. It was intended to be a showcase of British Columbia to the rest of Canada and the world and was the second largest event of its kind at the time behind the New York State Fair. So since the first fair, the annual event has become the largest annual ticket event in the province and continues to draw in excess of 900,000 visitors during its 15 days. Myself, never having I been one I've of them, I, gone either. I, I have don't kids know now, what so it's we'll have like. To go soon. Probably not this year, but eventually <laughs> it'll be on the rounds of things we do each year. Uh, a lot of things have debuted at the fair, according to the PNE's history website. The first rotary telephone in the Pacific Northwest, which is quite the caveat in there. They showed off some aircraft and rocketry displays, Ooh. a number of <laughs> gadgets as well. Yes, there are other large consumer shows that got their start as part of the fair, including the Vancouver Boat Show, the BC Home Show, and the Pacific International Auto Show, which were all once displays at the PE. In 2013, 
13 two attractions at the PNE were officially named heritage sites by the city of Vancouver. This includes the Pacific Coliseum that we've talked about. No, we haven't talked about the Coliseum. We talked about the Hastings building and the wooden roller coaster. That terrifying thing that is still standing to this day. Yes, this is, of course, part of Playland, the Playland Amusement Park, a 15-acre amusement park that has hosted millions of thrill-seekers since it opened alongside the p in 1910, originally named Happy Land, and it remained on its original site until 1958 when it was moved to its present site and reopened under the name Playland. So there you go, Playland, the p operates this time of year, late August till early September. It's already sold out on, for Thursday and Friday, but you can get tickets to the show, to the fair that starts this Saturday at pne.ca. Go see the Super I dogs. saw them at the Stampede a bunch when I was little. They're fun. Yeah, they are. They are fun. <gasps> Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another edition of The Camby Report. For Leg and Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Breaking news, everyone. As we finished recording, we saw that BC liquor stores have announced liquor rationing. The- so basically, at all government liquor stores, people are going to be limited to buying only three of any individual item per day. Except beer. Beer, you can still go as hard as you want. Hog wild on, yeah. Uh, details are still coming out. This seems like it's largely in response to challenges at the liquor distribution branch as the BCGEU is initiating job action and strikes particularly targeting the liquor distribution branch. Mostly, I want to note Jeff Guinard, executive director of the Alliance of Beverage Licenses of BC, Able BC, who put out a release saying, this is insane. (laughs) (laughs) Following his declaration of insanity, he follows this by saying, the only reason BC liquor stores are rationing quantities is because of the BCGEU strike, which is shutting down BC's vital liquor distribution warehouses. This, end quote. So these limits will impact everyone shopping at BC liquor stores, including pubs, bars, and restaurants. That is particularly pubs, bars, and restaurants, because pubs, bars, and restaurants are not able to purchase from private stores. That is illegal. We'll keep following this, but don't run on the liquor stores right now. Private liquor stores will not be rationing at the moment, but maybe this... They will, of course, still be required to price according to the BC's liquor distribution branch's pricing model, which makes them slightly more expensive in general, particularly for spirits. Have a good weekend, people. (laughs) Good day. Bye. (laughs) 